Welcome to Defenders, the teaching class of Dr. William Lane Craig. Today, the Doctrine of Christ, Part 11. For more information and resources from Dr. Craig, go to reasonablefaith.org. In our study of the atonement, we've been looking at some of the principal motifs in the New Testament that characterize the atonement wrought by Christ. The first of these, you remember, was sacrifice. The second is Isaiah's righteous servant of the Lord. And today we want to bring to a close that section before we turn to the third motif. We've seen that in Isaiah uh, chapter 52, 12 to the end of chapter 53, there appears this enigmatic figure called the servant of the Lord who suffers innocently and unjustly the punishment for Israel's sins in the place of the people. Now when we turn to the New Testament we find that Christian New Testament authors consistently interpret Jesus to be this sin-bearing servant of the Lord in Isaiah 53. For example, 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 24 says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. Echoing clearly the language of Isaiah 53. In light of Isaiah 53, texts like 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 3, which say that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, become pregnant with meaning. Taken in isolation, a text like this, Christ died for our sins, um, is ambiguous in what uh, it means to die for sins. But read in the light of Isaiah 53, it takes on deep meaning. It says that Christ, the Messiah, died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, the Old Testament. And there simply is no other passage in the Jewish scriptures, apart from Isaiah 53, that could be construed as even remotely about the Messiah's dying for people's sins. And what that means is that the expression died for our sins refers to substitutionary punitive suffering. This meaning of the word for, or translated by the word for, in 1 Corinthians 15.3 is ambiguous in itself. It is the Greek word hooper, um, which in and of itself doesn't tell you exactly what for means. But this, as I say, takes on this deeper significance in light of Isaiah 53. We see that it is referring to the substitutionary suffering of Christ. And this meaning of for is uh, made clear by other New Testament expressions like Romans 4 and verse 25 where it says Jesus was delivered up for our trespasses. And here the word for translates a different uh, Greek word, dia, followed by 
the accusative case. And in this case, the word for means on account of. And the words delivered up and for our trespasses, again, echo Isaiah chapter 53, verses 7 and 8. So that uh, dying uh, or being delivered up for our trespasses, on account of our trespasses, um, indicates substitutionary punitive suffering. This is also clear in Mark 10.45, the famous ransom saying where Jesus says that the Son of Man came to give his life as a ransom for many. And in this verse, the word for translates yet another Greek preposition, anti, which means instead of, or in the place of, or in exchange of. So we can see that in light of Isaiah 53, to say that Christ died for our sins takes on uh, a deep meaning of substitutionary punitive suffering. This is also clear, I think, in 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 21. In 2 Corinthians 5.21, Paul says, For our sake he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Now this verse reflects in all of its parts Isaiah 53. The expression, uh, him who knew no sin, recalls Isaiah 53, 9 and 11, where it says, the righteous one, my servant, in whose mouth was no deceit. The phrase, for our sake, he made him to be sin, recalls verse 6 of Isaiah 53, the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And the expression, in him we might become the righteousness of God, recalls verse 11 of Isaiah 53, the righteous one, my servant, shall make the many to be accounted righteous. So I think you can see that in 2 Corinthians 5.21, you have the echoes of Isaiah 53 with respect to Christ. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And once again, there is no other Old Testament passage that even remotely approaches the content of this sentence in 2 Corinthians 5.21. So, in summary, the New Testament authors, following Jesus' own self-understanding as expressed in his words at the Last Supper, saw Christ as the suffering servant described in Isaiah 53, who suffered in the place of sinners, bearing the punishment that they deserved so that they might be, in turn, reconciled to God. Any final discussion or question about the motif of the servant of the Lord from Isaiah 53? All right, then let's go on to our third important motif concerning the atonement, uh, one that is prominent in Paul's letters, and this is divine justice or righteousness. Now, we're interested here not primarily in Paul's doctrine of justification by faith, since that concerns not the atonement itself, but rather the appropriation of the benefits 
of the atonement. We want to inquire about the role of divine justice or righteousness in the act of atonement. Paul's exposition of the way in which Christ's death achieves reconciliation with God is suffused with forensic terminology or judicial terminology that is rooted in Jewish notions of law and justice. In the Old Testament, God is addressed with the legal title judge, and he acts righteously in that capacity. In Genesis 18.25, Abraham says to the Lord, shall not the judge of all the earth do right? And of course the answer is yes, he will. Moreover, the God of the Old Testament is not merely the judge, he is also the lawgiver. He's both the giver of the law and the judge. The heart of Old Testament Judaism was the divine Torah, or law, given by God to his people. This governed all of life and man's relationship to God. Even the notion of a covenant in the Old Testament is the notion of a legal contract between God and man. And it's very interesting to notice how often Old Testament writers um, actually prefer to use legal analogies and imagery when they are referring to what God does. To pick out just one example of several, Micah chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. Micah 6, 1 and 2. Here's what the prophet says. Hear what the Lord says. Arise, plead your case before the mountains, and let the hills hear your voice. Hear, you mountains, the controversy of the Lord, and you enduring foundations of the earth. For the Lord has a controversy with his people, and he will contend with Israel. Here God presents himself as having a legal controversy with the people of Israel, uh, and he calls upon them to plead their case, to present their case before him, and he calls upon the mountains to bear witness to the uh, trial to which he calls Israel. According to Leon Morris, uh, a, a biblical scholar, the use of legal categories with respect to God in the Old Testament is, and I quote, frequent, so frequent indeed that it is plain that it corresponds to something deep-seated in Hebrew thinking. Law and the Lord went together, end quote. In fact, it would be difficult, I think, to find a religion which is more wedded to legal categories than Old Testament Judaism. So when you turn to the New Testament, you find that it is filled with judicial language reflective of its Jewish background. Listen to how Paul blends both cultic that is to say liturgical or ritual language, with judicial language in characterizing Christ's death. This is from Romans 3, verses 21 to 26. Romans 3, 21 to 26. Paul says, But now, apart from law, the righteousness of God has been disclosed and is attested by the law and the prophets, the righteousness of God 
through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. Since all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, they are now justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a sacrifice of atonement by his blood, effective through faith. He did this to show his righteousness, because in his divine forbearance he had passed over the sins previously committed. It was to prove at the present time that he himself is righteous and that he justifies the one who has faith in Jesus. Now you notice that this translation that I've read alternates between righteousness terminology and justice terminology. They actually translate the same word or cognates of the same root, which is dikaiosune, uh, which means either righteousness or justice. Dikaiosune, righteousness or justice. Now you could use righteousness terminology throughout this passage uh, by adopting Paul's expression from Romans chapter 4 about reckoning righteousness. Uh, so that instead of justify, you would read something like this. They are now reckoned righteous by his grace. Instead of saying they are now justified by his grace, they are now reckoned righteous by his grace. On the other hand, if you wanted to, you could substitute justice terminology throughout, uh, and that would help to make clear the wordplay or pun that Paul has in verse 26, where he says it was to prove at the present time that he himself is just and he justifies the one who has faith in Jesus. God is both just and the justifier. Now, classically, there has been a debate over whether or not the expression dikaiosune feu, the righteousness of God, refers to an attribute of God or to the righteousness that he reckons to believers. Is the righteousness of God a property of God himself, akin to, say, his eternity, omnipotence, omnipresence, omniscience. Is that a property of God? Or is the righteousness of God something that he bestows upon people in Christ when he reckons righteousness to them? Well, I think it's pretty clear that the expression righteousness of God is multivalent. That is to say it has multiple meanings. For example, when Paul speaks of the righteousness of God through faith, it's clearly referring to reckoned righteousness because God's attributes are not through faith. God's attributes exist objectively, independently of whether anyone knows about them or not. So when Paul speaks of the righteousness of God through faith, he's talking about the righteousness which God reckons to us on the basis of faith. On the other hand, just as clearly, I think, when Paul says he himself is righteous, that clearly indicates a property that God has. Uh, God is righteous. This is part of the moral character of God. Any question about that classical 
debate over the nature of divine righteousness before we proceed to a more contemporary debate. Yes, James. Well, the, the question I've got here is, um, I, I, well, I, it's, I guess it's more of a statement. I, I don't see how that's a property of God. I see it's how it's, he, he bestows it on people because yeah. um, you could be justified, but without that reconciliation, the justification would really go nowhere. Is, it, is that appropriate to say? For example, if somebody gave you in a bank account with a million dollars in it, uh. but you didn't have the ability to access that account, it would not, it, it would do nothing. I think the issue you're raising, James, is a good one, and it is a matter of controversy. Actually, people that are in the Reformed tradition, the Calvinistic mm -hmm. tradition, I think would tend to disagree with you. Hmm. They would say that um, if God has redeemed or, or justified the elect mm -hmm. through the sacrifice of Christ, then there is an unbroken chain between that act and their ultimate salvation. And that's why the reform believed that Christ only died for the elect. Because you cannot have an inefficacious um, death of Christ. And, th and therefore Christ really didn't die for the non-elect. Otherwise it would be inexplicable while, why they're not redeemed. On the other hand, Lutherans and other Arminian types would say that your point is quite right, that mm -hmm. Christ's death can be sufficient to cover everyone's sins. He died for everyone, but there needs to be some appropriation of that atoning death. Otherwise, it doesn't, um, it's not efficacious for people. Now, we, we can talk about that mm -hmm. later on, but I don't think that it's germane to the point that I'm okay. wanting to make right now, and that is that the expression, the righteousness of God, is, as I think, multivalent. It can refer either to a property God has, like his holiness and goodness. God is righteous even before human beings are created, I would say. But then it is also this righteousness that is given or reckoned to those who have faith in him. So it's not an either or, it's a both and, I'm suggesting. Yes, Taiwan. Continue with James' metaphor. It's like a righteousness of God is his attribute. And the appropriation to the believer is through faith. So the faith is the accessing process to get the righteousness. And does that make sense? Well, I think so. If we think that because God is righteous in and of himself, mm -hmm. objectively, he can then reckon to us righteousness. Uh, and then we have the, a property of being righteous. This is something that Paul says is reckoned to those who have faith in Christ. There is a righteousness of God through faith. Yes, and the faith is depend on the individual that wanted to be reckoned. Yes, although again, as I say, Reformed Calvinistic theologians would say that that faith is itself a gift of God. It's not something you do. So um, they would say, in a sense, it's, it's all of God. But that's not the point that I want to make. I don't want to divide the brethren <laughs> at this point. Um, 
But on the contrary, to reconcile is by saying that both of these views are proper understandings of God's righteousness, and both of them appear in this very passage. Now, more recently, on the contemporary scene, a new debate about the expression, the righteousness of God, has arisen as a result of the so-called new perspective on Paul. This new perspective on Paul construes God's righteousness in terms of his covenant faithfulness, his faithfulness to the covenant that he has made with Israel. And so on this view, when the scriptures speak of the righteousness of God, what they really mean is God's faithfulness to his covenant. Now, if you adopt this sort of reductive analysis of God's righteousness, um, that it just means covenant faithfulness, then this is going to radically impact your doctrine of the atonement. Um, because then justification will be about God's reckoning covenant faithfulness to you, not moral righteousness. He reckons to you faithfulness to the covenant. And it seems to me that that is dubious as to whether or not it even makes sense. What does it mean to reckon covenant faithfulness to someone? Moreover, it seems that uh, on the basis of what Paul says, that would be insufficient for salvation. Look at Philippians 3, verses 6 to 9, where Paul talks about his life as a faithful Jew prior to becoming a believer in Christ. Philippians 3, 6 to 9. He says, as to zeal, I was a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as refuse in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own based on law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Here Paul says that as a Jew he was faithful to the covenant. He says, as to righteousness under the law, I was blameless. That's what he says. If anyone could say he exhibited covenant faithfulness, it was the pre-Christian Paul. And yet he said, I regard that as dung now uh, compared to the righteousness that I have in Christ. So merely reckoning to us faithfulness to the covenant wouldn't suffice for salvation. Paul already had that, and he said it availed for nothing. Moreover, this reductionistic understanding of the righteousness of God has been exposed now as fallacious through the work of um, writers like Charles Irons uh, in his book, The Righteousness of God. Charles Lee Irons, The Righteousness of God. Irons does a lexicographical study of this phrase in the Hebrew Old Testament, in the Greek Old Testament, in Greek literature outside 
the Bible and finally in the New Testament and shows that never does the phrase righteousness of God mean the faithfulness of God. And I think that the implausibility of such a reductionistic understanding of God's righteousness can be very clearly seen by just asking yourself, what is the opposite of righteousness? That is to say, what is unrighteousness? What is that said to be? Well, unrighteousness is not unfaithfulness, but rather, as Paul says in Romans 1.18, it is wickedness and ungodliness. He says in Romans 1.18 that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and wickedness of men who by their wickedness suppress the truth. So faithlessness is just one of many sins that go to make up ungodliness and wickedness. In Romans 1, Paul gives a whole litany of sins that characterize human iniquity and wickedness. And one of those is faithlessness, interestingly enough. So righteousness then is a general moral property which entails faithfulness, but it isn't reducible to faithfulness. There's a lot more to righteousness than just faithfulness. Righteousness entails faithfulness because it would be wrong to break your word. If you're a righteous person, you keep your word. And so God being righteous will be faithful to his covenant. But righteousness is not reducible to faithfulness. Moreover, if you do reduce God's righteousness to his faithfulness to the covenant, then it makes no sense at all to speak of God's relationship to Gentiles because the Gentiles stand outside the covenant with Israel. Um, So if unrighteousness means unfaithfulness to the covenant, then the Gentiles cannot be said to be unrighteous because they're not unfaithful to the covenant. They're not part of the covenant. And yet Paul expressly says in Romans 1 to 3 that the Gentiles are unrighteous and therefore stand condemned before God. Nor could a Gentile like Job be said to be righteous because Job wasn't part of the covenant uh, in the Old Testament. He was a Gentile, and yet God calls him my righteous servant, Job. So it seems to me that this claim that the righteousness of God is to be understood as his faithfulness to his covenant is really quite hopeless. It's unjustified lexicographically, uh, and moreover, it it really makes nonsense of uh, several of the factors that I've mentioned. Fortunately, I'm pleased to report, the proponents of the new perspective have more recently now backed away from their overly simplistic claims uh, about righteousness being the same as faithfulness to the covenant. For example, uh, James D.G. Dunn, uh, one of the principal proponents of the new perspective, uh, acknowledges in response to his critics that the Hebrew concept of righteousness cannot be reduced to covenant faithfulness or to salvation. He says that righteousness language in the Hebrew scriptures also involves punitive divine justice, according to which righteousness, and I quote, is understood as measured by a norm 
right order or that which is morally right with the qualification that, quote, the norm is not seen as some abstract ideal, but rather as a norm concretized in relation between God and creatures. So righteousness language not only refers to God's salvation of Israel when he vindicates Israel against her enemies, but it also means the condemnation of those enemies and judgment upon them. As one author, as I think, put it very effectively, um, punitive justice is the backside of God's righteousness. Yes, God's righteousness does save and vindicate Israel, but the backside of that is that the enemies of Israel are thereby judged and condemned. So when we come to the book of Romans, says Dunn, quote, that God's righteousness towards the peoples he has created includes wrath and judgment, as well as faithfulness and salvation, is clearly implicit in the sequences of Romans 1, 16 to 18, and chapter 3, verses 3 to 6, where it talks about the wrath of God uh, being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and wickedness of men. He says, those who deny the dikaiosune is a forensic term pay insufficient attention to Romans 5, verses 4 and 5. Let's just read those very interesting verses. Romans chapter 4, verses 4 and 5. He says, now to one who works, his wages are not reckoned as a gift, but as his due. And to one who does not work, but trusts him who justifies the ungodly, his um, faith is uh, reckoned as righteousness. Now notice that phrase, him who justifies the ungodly. Dunn says here the forensic background is clear in the allusion to the legal impropriety of a judge justifying the ungodly. In fact, this is exactly what the Old Testament says God will not do. He will by no means clear the guilty. He will not justify the ungodly. This is what the corrupt judge does. And yet here, God is said to justify the ungodly. And Dunn said here again, the thought is entirely of attributing a righteous status to one who is unrighteous, namely Abraham. So you have here judicial forensic terminology um, that shows that righteousness involves not only salvation and faithfulness, but it is also, it also involves punitive justice uh, and condemnation of the unrighteous. Any comment or question about this new dispute over the meaning of the term righteousness of God. Cash. Okay, I may have missed this, so pardon me if you mentioned it, but is there some kind of uh, agenda behind this new perspective that there that is trying to be pushed somehow, or is it just a, an attempt at a new reading of Paul's theology? Well, I, I do think it is a new reading of Paul's theology. It, it has radical implications. Whether there's an agenda, I hate to try to psychoanalyze the proponents of this perspective. I do think that sometimes they are very opposed 
to traditional Reformation doctrine with regard to justification and atonement. And this is one way to try to escape Luther's snatches uh, by reinterpreting the righteousness of God to mean not a kind of normative concept which condemns as well as justifies, but to reinterpret as just God is faithful. Uh, God will keep true to his covenant and his promises. And fortunately, I think through the work of people like Charles Irons, this um, reinterpretation has now been really exposed as untenable. Anyone else? Yes, Taiwan. I thought of the example that Jesus took uh, with the rich young ruler, uh, where his righteousness is uh, his own quality, mm -hmm. uh, but Jesus, uh, he wanted him to be relational uh, in righteousness. Uh, so I think uh, the can, can we say that uh, it's a emotional quotient righteousness in relational term versus um, this in IQ uh, of I understand what righteousness is and I attain them kind of thing. Well, I wouldn't want to put it that way, Tiwan. I like your example of the rich young ruler who says all of these commandments I've kept since my youth. I mean, here was a man who was faithful to the covenant, and yet Jesus said he fell short of the kingdom of God. I think that's a good point. But we mustn't interpret this as some sort of an emotional um, relational thing. It is a legal thing. It is a judicial thing. That's what is so novel about the reformers doctrine is that God legally declares us acquitted, not guilty. It is, it is like a legal pardon and this doesn't immediately affect the moral character of the person pardoned. Think of a criminal who's been pardoned by the president. When he's pardoned, his crime is gone, uh, it's expiated, he no longer has to pay the punishment, but he doesn't suddenly become a good and virtuous person. That's going to take time and effort for him to reform uh, morally. But the pardon is a legal act whereby his guilt is canceled and his debt is, is canceled. And that's what the righteousness of God does in Paul's thinking. It is a legal or forensic declaration of God that this person is acquitted. Yes, Cody. I hope I'm not jumping ahead. If I am, just stop me, though. But if I was wondering if you could comment, because I understand Catholics have a different view. They view that not as they, they like to say, call it a, quote, legal fiction, that view. So they think mm -hmm. that the justification is God infusing righteousness right, right. into the person. So I was guess, could you okay, comment a bit I, on that? I or? wasn't going to mention that, but since you brought it up, in contrast to the reformers' view that um, justification is a forensic or judicial declaration, the traditional Catholic view is that God actually infuses into you the moral property of righteousness. That it actually does make you become a virtuous person. Um, and so this is not simply a legal act, it is something that God actually uh, 
infuses into you and, and thereby transforms you. The reformers, of course, have a doctrine of the transformation of the life, but that's called sanctification. Uh, they would say that justification is a legal forensic act whereby you are declared righteous before God's bar of justice. But then, through the work of the Holy Spirit, as you walk in the Spirit and are conformed to the image of Christ, you are sanctified and become more and more like what you are declared to be in Christ. So you're quite right. This is a very different view than the Catholic view. Uh, along those same lines, um, I was thinking about this idea of the legal fiction and the pardon that a criminal can get, say, from the president or from a judge, is not the same thing as being declared righteous. Even when we acquit a criminal, hmm. we're not declaring them innocent. We're saying that they don't meet the standards that requires us to declare them guilty. So it's a difference when, when, like, say, when Casey Anthony got off from killing her daughter. The court did not say she did not kill her daughter. They said that she, they didn't have evidence to prove her guilt. So it's a different wow. thing to declare us righteousness versus uh, to pardon us for something that we All clearly right. did. Um, boy, you've raised a whole <laughs> Pandora's <laughs> box of things here, and I'm out of time. So we'll have to come back to this issue um, later on. So with that, let's close, shall we, with, with the benediction. And now may our God and Father, who has reckoned us righteous in Jesus Christ and justified us by his grace, so fill you with the Holy Spirit and sanctify you that you might come to approximate all that you are in Christ. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, amen. The copyright for the preceding material is held by Dr. William Lane Craig. For more, go to reasonablefaith.org.